You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host Nilin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to season nine. This is episode five. Hey guys, welcome back to the Home Staging Show podcast. On today's show, I'm interviewing Betsy Helmuth, who is the owner of Affordable Interior Design and a national celebrated interior designer. She has appeared on the Today Show, HGTV, DIY Network, CBS, NBC, and in dozens of magazines and newspapers. She penned a popular DIY design book, Big Design, Small Budget: Create a Glamorous Home in Nine Thrifty Steps, which is published by Skyhorse. And she hosts a weekly home decorating podcast, which is also syndicated on iTunes by the same name. Her firm has grown to serve clients in New York City, New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island, and parts of the Hudson Valley. Betsy also helps clients virtually in other parts of the country with online classes and a weekly Facebook live chat, where she dishes out design wisdom for free. I'm super excited about sharing this episode with you because Betsy has a really great way of breaking things down. I basically have always staged and style houses. And whatnot events or whatever, based on my own intuition and how I feel about it. And when I first had assistant, I had to really start learning how to communicate how I do things with my assistant, so they can duplicate that in our work. And Betsy just have a really great way to communicate all these very seemingly intuitive things that we do when we stage and style. So I think it will be a really helpful episode for you guys. So all right, let's start the show. So hi Betsy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what services does your company provide? Sure, I own Affordable Interior Design, and we're based in the New York City area. But we have designers on the ground in the New York City area and Washington D.C., and we work virtually internationally. And I got my start back in 2005, so we've been around quite a while. But I was kind of just doing it on my own as a hobby business up until 2012, and just learning myself because I didn't actually go to interior design school. I was a painter, so I made paintings for people's apartments, and I noticed how tragic their apartments were when I got inside to measure for the painting and talk to them about the subject matter. I was like, "Wait, you don't even have a couch. <laughs> Something is wrong here." So I decided to become an interior designer so that I could not only Infuse the space with beautiful arts, but also just make it feel more homey and comfortable. And that's really where my passion lies. Is you know, a lot of people don't have the money to hire a high-end interior designer, even if they do have the money. Which, face it, not many people do. You have to have millions and millions of dollars to allocate these kinds of funds to high-end design. But even if you did have that, people don't want to wait the time it takes. You know, to do things that are custom, to do things that are super high end, it can take you six months to six years to fully design your space. And I'm being conservative; like you could work for 16 years on your space, and that's just not how my clientele, and frankly, that's not how I live. I want my space designed in six weeks, so I can move in, have it completely done. I can start living my life, and I don't have to think constantly about rugs, dining chairs. I just want my family to feel at ease right away. I want to be able to host a dinner party right away. So I went to apprentice for a high-end designer, Tom Felicia, so that I could kind of learn the ropes. But again, I saw that high-end process, and it did not resonate with me at all. I am not waiting six months to get my sofa. I don't even really want to wait six days. 
so I started affordable interior design using the design principles I'd learned from Tom Felicia because he's amazing craftsman and artist, but translating them to places where I could shop retail like Target, Ikea, Room and Board, Design Within Reach, you know, and even those places can get a little bit pricey, but compared to high-end design, it's a fraction of the cost. That's great. I love that. And I didn't know that you were for Tom Felicia. I think that's really impressive. Well, I was just an apprentice, so I wasn't a designer for him per se, but he was so busy with his TV show, Queer Eye, that he had us working on projects from day one. So I was manning projects. I was on site. I was seeing him watching over his shoulder while he selected things, while he created floor plans. And I absorbed like a sponge. It was such a rare opportunity. And I was working for free. I mean, most people do not have the luxury of being able to work nine to five for free for somebody. I would leave Tom Felicia and go to my bartending job till 4 a.m., wake up in the morning and go back to Tom Felicia for 9 a.m. That's not something that most people can do time-wise or energy-wise, but when you're 23, you can make anything happen. That is amazing. But if I get a chance to do that, I would do the same too. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. It was. And, you know, at the time, I didn't have any thoughts of becoming an interior designer. I just knew I loved interior design. I knew that my clients who commissioned paintings from me needed help. So I was just absorbing it as an artist for that artistry. And I wasn't really absorbing the business practices. Now, after having been in business for 14 years, I want to go back and just check out its invoicing systems and, (laughs) you know, go on the back end CRM, things like that. But it's a new lens. And I think because I wasn't looking at those other facets, I was really able to absorb that true design artistry. That's amazing. And I really love your company name because your company name is Affordable Interior Design. So like you mentioned earlier, it seems very counterintuitive. There might be a common misconception that interior design equals big budget. So what is your approach to making design accessible to all price points? Well, most interior designers charge an initial retainer fee. Uh, You charge $30,000 just to take my time, just to work with me. And then I upcharge every piece you buy by 30%. So I'm not only making money from that initial investment that you made in wanting my time and wanting my brand, but then also each piece you buy, I make a big chunk off of it. That's that high-end interior design model. But it was so counterintuitive to how I grew up in the Midwest, where I don't want to be finding the most expensive item for my clients so I get paid more. Like, that's not cool. If I can find a really awesome item on the sale rack, well, I want to do that for you. If I can go to a flea market and find a fruit bowl that's just so cool for 99 cents, I want to do that for you. And if you do that markup model, that 30% markup model, well, it doesn't make sense to find a good deal. In fact, you want to find a worse deal so you get paid more. And that just felt wrong. Like you're not on the side of the client. You're on the side of your pocket. At least that's how it felt to me. There are some benefits to that model. But for me, I wanted to be shopping at Urban Outfitters in the back room where they're selling the drawer knobs for 30 cents. Like that was the thrill for me. And meeting my client's budget but exceeding their design expectations was the thrill for me. So I created flat rate packages. 
And those are tricky too, you know, because some clients take more time than others. Some clients are choosier than others. So it took me a while to get that perfect formulation of a flat rate package where we make money each time, but we're affordable enough to still have our name affordable interior design. So we're not the cheapest people on the market. You know, you can hire an online designer for $45 and get a preliminary plan. But what's the quality there? Where is it coming from? Is it just a template? Are they on the back end only shopping from a handful of stores so that they get deep kickbacks from those stores? I just don't like those ulterior motives at all. I think that's a very interesting point you brought up. I think this comes in staging as well. It's that there's a really wide range in terms of price point. So when the consumer is working with an interior designer, what are some of the things they need to, or some of the questions they need to ask in order to make sure they know exactly what they're getting? Well, I think the key is transparency because a lot of people get surprised at the end by the price tag. And that is never something I want my clients to experience. I want them to know that if they want more, exactly what it's going to be, you know, exactly how much it's going to cost. I want them to be able to total it in advance so they're not panicking when they can't afford to pay their credit card bill. I think the key is asking the designer or the person you're looking to work with how they work, what the requirements are, and then being super open about your budget. Tell me how much you have to spend. At Affordable Interior Design, I am not going to balk at your budget because I don't make more the more you spend. In fact, your project is much easier for me the lower your budget is because I have fewer options. If you tell me your budget is $100,000, I can shop at a lot of stores. If you tell me your budget is $3,000, I am quite limited and have to stay very focused on those lower-end stores and the areas that they do have some quality pieces in. That's really interesting. I love that. And so based on the budget they gave you, how do you make the selection of the stores and what kind of quality of the pieces that they're getting? Well, I have each client fill out a questionnaire in advance that gives me a really clear sense of their style, what they like, what they don't like, the look they're going for, the challenges they foresee. And then I tailor my selections to what they've shown me that they like and how much they have to spend. And it really does range from shopping at Ikea to shopping at Mitchell Gold Bob Williams, which is kind of a pricier store, but it's completely tailored to those two ideas, budget and style. Because I'm only going to shop at our house for my more eclectic clients, my transitional clients, my traditional clients. And I'm only going to shop at Ikea for my contemporary clients, my modern clients. There are some transitional pieces there. And that's where hiring an interior designer comes in handy. Because I know, I have touched all these pieces. I work with these pieces every gosh darn day. I know where you can get quality pieces and where you need to spend a little bit more to get that quality. I know that Ikea is 80% crap, 20% gold, and I can tell you what pieces will last you for year after year and what pieces you shouldn't go near at Ikea. And it's because of that experience level. That's great. I love that. And we talk about budget a lot um, because the nature of the work that you do. So what are some of the common mistakes that you see homeowners make when it comes to budgeting for their home designs? You know, it was a common mistake that people make, and they ask me all the time, including today. I had a client call today, and the lady said, okay, so I've made a spreadsheet, and I've allocated a certain amount of money for each item. 
I have $700 to spend on the rug. I have $200 to spend on the nightstand. I have $100 to spend on this lamp. And that is the wrong way to do it. Think of that larger number, that number that you would feel very uncomfortable if your designer exceeded it. And share that number with your designer, but don't tell them where to spend it because that's why you're paying for that expertise. I happen to know you do not need to spend $700 on that six by nine rug. I can find you an amazing rug for $200, but I also happen to know that if you only give me $200 for a nightstand, it's not going to be the best quality. Let me choose how to allocate it. And you give me that number that makes you start to sweat when I go over it. And also that will kind of thin the herd in terms of what designers you're going to work with. Because if you call most design firms and say you have a budget of $10,000, they won't even work with you. And that's a really good sign because you know that they might have pushed you past that number. They might have made you max out your credit cards. You want to be that open that early on in the process. If somebody calls me with $10,000, I'm excited. We can make that work. I think that is so fascinating. I think a lot of times homeowners don't really understand how much this thing would cost them. So how would they come up with that number they're not comfortable with if they have just, they're just clueless about the whole process? Believe it or not, my clients can always come up with that number because they call me and they say, Betsy, I really don't know my budget. I have no idea. And I say, okay, well, if I spent $20,000 on furnishings for you, would you feel uncomfortable? And then they're like, oh my God, never $20,000. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, how about 15? And they're like, okay, that feels okay. And I'm like, well, there's your budget. So it's really just throwing out some numbers and seeing what sticks. Like if somebody said to me, Betsy, how much do you want to spend on your master? 3,000? I'd be like, no, 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 I can do more than that. They'd say 10,000. I'd be like, no, I am not exceeding $10,000 for my master. So it's like that, right? Just go there with yourself mentally. And that can change. You know, so many people think, well, my budget should be based on how much I make or my budget should be based on how many pieces I need. And that's not true. Your budget needs to be based on where you are in your lifestyle right now. Like when I had two very young children, I did not spend a lot on my living room furniture. They were still throwing up. They were still spilling their juice box. They were still coloring on my furniture. I am not going to buy a room and board sofa. And even though I had the money to buy a room and board sofa, I knew that that wasn't where I was in my life. And in five years, when my kids are in their teens, I'm going to upgrade. The furniture I have now that's taken me from elementary school through junior high is going to go back to the universe. And I'm going to buy those pieces I've been waiting for, those pieces that are no longer going to get stained with pizza smears and playdate activity. That's a very good point. Yeah. So it's about knowing like how long you're going to be in this space. Are you renting? Are you owning? Uh, There's a lot of questions, but it has nothing to do with how much you make. Exactly. So how about design mistakes? What are some of the common mistakes that you see and how can homeowners avoid them? I think the biggest mistake that I see both for homeowners and for people who are potentially staging is that they think small. So instead of getting a nice large area rug that would really show the room to its best advantage and show how big the space is, they get this small five by eight, four by six, and they put it under their coffee table. And instead, it makes the room look very small. It also makes it look visually cluttered because you have all these small pieces instead of some substantial larger pieces. So people are afraid of getting, you know, an entertainment unit because it's so big. It's such an investment and has a large footprint. 
So instead, they buy three bookcases, a TV stand, and some floating shelves. And it looks chaotic and crazy. Invest in that one big piece. Don't be afraid to go big with some of these things. People say they want to seat a lot of people for parties. So they buy a couch and four armchairs. Well, it looks super cluttered. You should have gotten a sectional and one armchair. And that would have been better. So being afraid to make a commitment to a large piece is one of the main problems I see. I see. And what should we do if we're afraid of colors? Well, I think a lot of clients are afraid of color. I think a lot of times people are afraid using color is because, like, say they want to use really bold colors, but they don't want it to look like cheap or too juvenile, like to make it look too young. And so people are afraid to use color. So how can you conquer that fear? Or is there a better way to put a color palette together? Like, what are some of your suggestions? So the way that I derive a color palette is that I find an inspiration piece. And an inspiration piece can be anything in your room that you're really excited about that has three rainbow colors, Roy G. Biv colors or more. Because a lot of times people think a color is gray or off-white or cream. And those are not colors. Those are neutrals. Uh, so when we're thinking colors, we want to think Roy G. Biv. So you'll think about that um, inspiration piece that you want to use. And then you'll derive or you'll choose, excuse me, three colors from that. So say it was a piece of art, which it most commonly is. Or say it was a patterned rug. Or say that it was drapes that have a lively pattern, three colors or more. Well, you pull out three colors that you want to use for the accents around the room. But you don't use them in all the same dosage. So it's called the 60-30-10 rule. It is not a rule that I made up. This is a kind of known rule in the design world. But you pull out three of those colors. Say you pull out blue, green, and mustard. All right. And those are all found in that inspiration piece, be it the art, the rug, whatever. Then you're going to use them in different amounts. So I would use the blue 60% of the time, say for drapes, for an ottoman, for pillows. Then I would use the green 30% of the time, say for another set of pillows, for a painted media stand and an ottoman. And then I would use that yellow color 10% of the time. So I would use it for little pops like bookends or a coat tree or a little accent rug. And that is the way you create a color palette. Then everything else that you're doing in that room could be on a base of neutral, right? So you can incorporate as many neutrals as you want in that space. But when you're using those bright, bold colors, you only use three and you use them in different amounts. I love that. I love the 60-30-10 rule. I think it makes the perfect sense. Yeah. And it really comes out beautifully. It looks complex. looks like you hired a designer. And if three colors feels like too much, then you can forego that 10%. You can just do the 60-30. Right. And do you have any tips on selecting finishes? So tell me about finishes. What you mean by that? Do you mean like... Uh... Right. So let's say people are doing their kitchen. So now they have a color palette or they're, but they don't know what should I put for backsplash, what kind of finishes I should have on my faucets. How do you go about that? Because I know especially trends fade relatively quickly. And so how do you update your home without making it look outdated You know, in a few years? Well, it really depends and it varies piece by piece. You do want to think about the architecture of your home. You don't want those finishes 
like light fixtures or hardware on a kitchen cabinet to feel totally incongruous with the era of the home you're living in. In other words, if I owned a Victorian home, I would not put modern lacquered cabinets inside there unless I had a very eclectic point of view and was really being uh, monitored closely by a professional, an interior designer, because those things are incongruous and it will not feel like they go together. And those are both architectural elements. That being said, you don't have to go fully Victorian either. I don't have to pick pieces that look antique, but you do want to be thinking about what is the context? What is the world of the space that I'm designing? And the first place I go is architecture. And then I think about, you know, because obviously you've chosen your home because you like that style. Obviously you've chosen that home because something about that architecture resonates with you, even if it's not completely your style. So then secondarily, I say, what style do I personally want to infuse? Where are the overlaps between the architecture of the home and what I personally like and finding that synergy. And that's where, for instance, for instance, I have a craftsman sort of but it has a lot of Mediterranean features. It has some like terracotta tile that was already there when I moved in. It has like this big stove hood that's made of terracotta that has this Moroccan style pattern on the tiles. It is not anything I would have chosen. It does go nicely with my stucco home. So when I was picking out a backsplash for my kitchen, I'm not going to choose mid-century modern, which is really where my heart sings. Instead, I chose another sort of Moroccan-shaped arabesque tile, but in a color that I really love, which was like this French blue. I got to embrace my personality by doing it in a color, because I'm quite a vibrant, bold person. Uh, But I got to kind of compromise with my home by choosing that arabesque shape. I love that. It's, It's a compromise, right? But it's always about asking the architecture first. And then bringing your point of view in. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of breaking it down. Because ultimately, you need to respect the architecture of the home. And when I was staging, I think one of the biggest, the hardest part is when I see homes where you can see where the previous owner end and then the new owner begins. Right. Because like, for example, when they add an extension, they put it in a style that they like, but it might not work with the existing architectural style of the home. So that's right. So when it sell it, it's going to be very difficult because now you have a house with two different distinctive styles. That's right. And people are looking for something that looks cohesive, that looks like it all goes together, even though it didn't all happen at the same time. And you want it to look like the choices that you've made seamlessly fit in with what's happening, even though they don't have to be original. Because, of course, we have to update our homes in order to sell them, too, or in order for it to not look like some kind of museum piece. My home is from 1913. I can't be living in 1913. Exactly. And so what are some of the ways to create interiors that look high-end but still budget-friendly? Well, I think one way is to go with timeless patterns. Try and avoid trends. So just because you see something at CB2 or at Home Goods, these tend to be trendier pieces that won't necessarily last over time because they're meant to sort of just be that pop in the moment. So if you go for more timeless pieces, classic styles, 
then people won't really know where you got it or how much you spent. I also think adding color is really imperative to kind of diverting people's eyes from more affordable selections. Because if everything you have in your home is gray or everything is beige, if you didn't spend a lot of money, all beige from Walmart looks really bad. It looks like you did not make any choices. Whereas if you use a base of beige items from Walmart, but pop it with some pillows that have a pattern or color, people are drawn to those details and they'll be more forgiving of those neutral pieces because they're not getting as much focus. So I think it's more important when you're designing on lower budgets to incorporate some of those pieces that add that visual wow so that people aren't looking at the small details because the seaming on your sofa will not be perfect. The fabric for your throw blanket is not going to be luxurious if you're on a really low budget. But if it has a cool pattern or texture, people are going to be kind of forgiving of that. That's a very interesting tip. Yeah, I think... I think that is right because when I was staging, I like for our base furniture, like we'll buy obviously something a little more affordable because staging, we have to move it all the time. But for accessories, we do invest in higher quality pieces that has more textures, more patterns, um, just to really distract the eye, really. Exactly. And I kind of consider it like shopping at Forever 21 for a perfect little jersey black dress. But then going to Anthropology or J. Crew for the statement necklace. Right. That is really going to provide that canvas from which those wow factor pieces can pop and people will pay attention to those and less attention to the jersey dress. Right. So it's thinking like that that I think, and also you can get accents more affordably then you can get a large scale piece. Like a high-end sofa is gonna cost you $5,000. A high-end pillow is gonna cost you $120. Exactly, that's why. Do you remember, I think it's really interesting that you use Forever 21 as an example. Do you remember in the 90s, Sharon Stone wear this Gap shirt to an Oscar party? Or like to attend an Oscar. Yeah, she paired it with this, like basically the, like a ball gown bottom, I think. And it looked really, really okay. good. Even though she was wearing like a Gap white shirt. But the way she paired it was so so elegant and it was such a shock to everyone when they found out that she was wearing a Gap shirt. Well, and that also overlaps with my classic comment. That was a classic piece, a t-shirt. She didn't go for something super trendy like a ruffled tank, right? Which might betray the fact that it's not as good a quality because it's kind of a trendier moment. When you go for a classic white tee, nobody can tell where it's from. Right. When you go for that classic sofa that has legs, nobody can really tell where it's from. And that's a really good starting place when you're shopping on a budget. And so if the home is outdated, so what are some of the budget-friendly tips to help to refresh the interiors? Well, I love something like tile tattoos, which is something that you can buy online. And there are these vinyl decals that you can put on top of tile to update the tile. And they come in different sizes, depending on the shape of your tile. A lot of people have outdated squares in their bathroom. And so they make the different tattoos in the different square styles. And you can choose them and overlay them on top of your tile. And they just peel off like a sticker when you're done. I do that a lot of times in kitchens. For instance, I lived in a space that had a kitchen with the square tiles and half of the tiles were emblazoned with fruit 
uh, paintings. Not exactly my style, these intricate bowls of grapes and bananas. So I got tile tattoos in a fun retro design and I put them over each square where the fruit was and it looked great. You couldn't even see the fruit paintings anymore. And that works really well in a bathroom. Uh, I also think removable wallpaper is a really fun way to go. I have a bathroom in my home that's quite dated. Uh, it looks like they maybe redid it in the 80s or 90s. I have no time, energy, or um, money at this point to invest in that area because it's not falling apart. It's just not current. So what I did is I got removable wallpaper from Anthropology. I put it up above the tile, and now it looks so cool, so intentional. Nobody's even paying attention to my basic square tiles with navy border. That's amazing. They're looking at how beautifully it corresponds with the removable wallpaper, which was as easy to put up as contact paper. You just peel off the back, put it up, and it looks beautiful. That's great. And it's also very rental friendly because you can just turn it back once you're done. That's right. And real estate agents can say, this is removable. It'll peel off easily. Uh, but it just makes the space look stylish rather than outdated. Exactly. And do you have any guidelines in hanging artwork? Yes. So when you're hanging a piece that doesn't have a relationship to anything, in other words, it's not over a bed, it's not over a sofa, it's not over a console table, it should be hung at museum height, which is optimum height for everyone to see. So museums in the United States hang their artwork from the floor to the center of the piece at 60 inches. So that's what I do when I'm hanging artwork in a hallway, when I'm hanging artwork anywhere that it's not above a piece of furniture. When I'm hanging a piece of artwork or mirror above a piece of furniture, I'll keep it low in relationship to that piece of furniture. So between four and 12 inches above the furniture piece. So that way it feels like it has a relationship to the bed, a relationship to the console versus just being a piece that's floating in space. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love the way you put it, the re having that relationship with the piece. Otherwise, it would just look like it's floating in space. And I find that that's one of the number one mistake I see when homeowners are hanging artwork or photos in their room. Because I see a lot of stagers, actually. Like people hang artwork very, very high. And yes the whole piece just kind of looks like they're floating in the air, unfortunately. That's right. So, yeah. Or, they or it looks like giants lived here previously. I did design for a professional basketball player who was seven foot three and everything in his home was hung freakishly high. And I get <laughs> it in that context. I do. But you want to think about those visitors who are coming. You want to think about what naturally feels comfortable for people. And if you are abnormally tall, maybe you just get a larger scale mirror or a larger piece of art rather than hanging small things much higher. Right. Yeah. One of the things I saw also is if they hang an artwork or a photo that's not proportionate to the piece that's underneath it. Oh my gosh. Hello. Sing it, sister. Yeah. So sometimes I see a I huge a sofa. For that too. Yeah, a huge <laughs> sofa with a tiny, tiny piece of artwork. Uh, and it just throws everything off. Yes. Now that can be really cool. One in a hundred times. Like if you're designing for anthropology <laughs> and you put a little eight by ten over a huge 120-inch sofa, if you're really going for something abnormal freaky and completely off base, then it can be interesting with the right intention. 
But for the most part, you want to do my 50 to 75% ratio. So you take the length of the couch, the length of the bed, whatever you're hanging it above, bar, console, and times that length by 50% or 75%. And that should be the width of your piece, of your artwork, of your mirror. And so in other words, if I have a 100-inch sofa, my piece of artwork needs to be 50 inches wide or wider. That's the 50%. And it's really important. But I try not to exceed the 75% length. So that would be a 75-inch long piece because then it starts to take over. It tends to look a little bit top-heavy or too equidistant. So that 50 to 75% ratio is a winner every time. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, 75, yeah, so that's about right. It's funny because I always kind of eyeball things I never thought about in terms of numbers. And so when you- I never eyeball anything. I (laughs) use my formulas, I cling to them, you know, because I didn't go to design school. So I had to make stuff up based on seeing over 2,500 clients. And so I made hard and fast rules, numbers, formulas, ratios, so that I can just pull them out of my pocket and say, this is what you need to do. That's awesome. So I can teach my designers, this is the number, always stay within the number, like let's just keep within the number. That's great. And so when you're looking at an empty room, how do you decide where to put the furniture, accessories and artwork and all that good stuff? Now that's its very own podcast. <laughs> I have a specific game that I play with my clients called the floor plan game. And it's the perfect way to figure out a floor plan every single time. It is a little bit involved. Um, so yeah, it's, it's its own thing. But I do have a formulaic way of working that I work with with every single client. Because I think the key when creating a floor plan and purchasing items is knowing with 100% confidence that you have the right layout. And the only way to know that you have the right layout is to try every possible option. So that's why I created the floor plan game. That's very cool. Do you want to share a tiny bit what it sounds like? Or... It's intense. It's a, it is its own podcast. I'm actually creating an interior design certification course right now oh, cool. because as I mentioned, I did not go to design school. So I had to make up all these formulas, all these rules, all these systems for getting it right every time, even though I didn't actually know how to get it right just intuitively. Like you said, I walk in, I just know. Right. I would walk in when I was a new designer and I wouldn't know anything. I see. And I'm like, well, how am I going to figure this out? without looking like an idiot. And so I made these techniques and ways to work that I teach my designers. And you know, most of my designers, five of the seven have been to interior design school, but they still have to learn my way of working. And they are constantly surprised. I'm constantly seeing these people who have been to an interior design school, laying out a room all wrong, laying it out counterintuitively not maximizing the wall, not thinking about the balance in a room. If I have a sofa on one side, I need to balance it out on the other side with something pretty large so that it doesn't feel like one side of the room has all the visual weight. So there's all these things to keep in mind that even if you go to interior design school, even if you are a certified interior designer, you probably missed it. They maybe didn't teach it. So I saw a lot of gaps in that teaching. And that's why I'm launching my certification in the spring. Very spring summer. Yeah. Good for you. That's why I started my own home staging school. Too. I was gonna say, <laughs> I was gonna say, I bet you have a similar point of view. But I think it's so important when you see these gaps in the market, when you see these gaps of comprehension and these people who are excited to learn, 
I really want to share that formula, but it gets so granular that only people who are really interested in interior design should uh, learn my game. Yeah, no, I agree. And also, it's hard not to see visual. Like sometimes that's a challenge with a podcast. It's like people, some people are visual learners, so they hear it, they don't necessarily understand it. So that's a challenging as well. So following that line of question, what are some of the common mistakes when people are laying their rooms out? Well, I think one common mistake is what I just referenced, which is not thinking of balance. Mm-hmm. You know, they put the sectional on one side of the room. They also, oh, in fact, yesterday I was working with a client. I was working with a client on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, and he lived in a studio apartment. He wanted both a sofa and a bed in that main living space because there is only one living space in a studio. And his initial inclination was to put both the bed and the sofa on the same wall so he could see the TV from both places. But that meant that one side of the room had all the upholstered furniture and the other side of the room had all the case goods, the TV stand, the dresser. And that isn't balanced, right? We want to think about if I have some upholstery on one side, I want to put some fabric or upholstery on the other side. If I have some wooden case goods on one side, I want to make sure that I put some others on the other side so that it doesn't feel like wood versus fabric. Yeah. <laughs> I love that's a very man rationale of placing furniture. Well, no judgment. My ex is always the same way. Everywhere we go, they're like, that would be a perfect place to put a TV. I was like, is that all you really think about? Like, that's the only like piece of furniture he cared about, it seems like. And I feel his pain. I am a huge TV watcher. And I think it's so important to tell your clients your vices because they're sharing so much with me personally. You know, I know where he's keeping his underwear and socks. So I feel like it's important <laughs> to share something kind of bad about my, you know, I love watching TV. I don't want to make you feel bad that you wanted to watch the TV from both places. I have a constant screen within arm's reach and it's one of my vices, Right. So there's no judgment. So I always try and come and design projects like that too, because you can tell him that's not a realistic goal, or you can tell him that's not a smart idea because X, Y, Z. But if I haven't solved the problem for him in some way, he's going to keep it as it is, or he's going to be unhappy and never sit on his bed because he can't see the TV. So how I justified that as I was like, well, you're streaming anyway. You can watch it on your laptop when you're watching in bed, which is rare. And primarily you're watching from the sofa. And I think the sacrifice of having a balanced room is worth you having to watch on a smaller screen in your bed. And he agreed with me. He's like, well, I actually don't watch TV that much from my bed. Okay. So it's, it's all a compromise. We're not shooting this for House Beautiful at affordable interior design. You know, if it winds out that it is picture ready, which they rarely are, great. But I want it to be lifestyle ready. I want this to totally align with your personal goals and how you live. That's great. I love that. Lifestyle ready. That's such a great tagline. Because so many people are like, oh, but it's not going to look perfect. Oh, but it doesn't look like the thing I saw on HGTV. It doesn't have to. It needs to match your lifestyle. Like HGTV doesn't have massive amounts of shoes and backpacks like my life does. Yeah. I have kids. We have four shoes apiece. That's just (laughs) the way things go. Cleats and whatever. Yeah. And I think most people don't realize HGTV is TV. I mean, it's edited for television, not for real people's lifestyle. I worked on one HGTV show when I was staging for this one episode. I mean, the things that they want to do as TV producer were not necessarily realistic 
in terms of how people actually live in the space. Like a lot of it is for TV effects, you know? Right. So I think most audience actually may not realize that, that a lot of it is staged for television, but not necessarily for living. Right. They're not thinking about where is that person putting their mail? Where is that person <laughs> putting their keys? Are they throwing their coat on the sofa? They don't have any hooks. So these are things you don't have to worry about in TV because people aren't coming in and out of the space every day while you're shooting. But when the cameras leave, where are they hanging their coat? Yeah. So I think finding that balance is extremely important. So when you're putting your design plan together for your clients, how do you know when is enough or do you need to add more accessories or more artwork or more furniture into a room or take out more? I would say start with less, add more. So let's get those tasks, those practical things that you need to get done in this space. Oh, you want to have dinner for six every night? Oh, you want to have room to watch the Super Bowl with your friends in terms of seating in front of the television? Oh, you have a hundred books. Like we have to solve these practical problems and then you can add more. Then if you decide, you know, instead I want to host a dinner party for 10, well, you can cross that bridge because I always tell my clients, you should design for how you live 350 days of the year. So if one day a year, you're going to have 10 people over for dinner, I don't even want to think about it when I'm designing your space because you'll make it work. You'll get a card table. You'll have a kid table somewhere else. You'll eat on the patio. But we want to think about how you're living day to day, not that one exception. I love that because I think a lot of people prepare for a special occasion. They think about Thanksgiving, but I don't want to think about the rest of the 364 days. That's right. And then they make the design around that Thanksgiving they hope to host. So day to day, it doesn't fit functionally. That table is way too big. There's so many chairs. Nobody knows where to sit in your family. And they've lost sight of that larger goal. The larger goal is to have gracious living day to day and to make it work on those rare occasions. Right. And what are some of the biggest design lessons you've learned in your career? Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> There's a list a mile long. Um, I've put them all in my book, Affordable Interior Design, just came out in January. Right. Uh, it's really long. The list is really long. Um, Let's take the top three. How about that? <laughs> well, I do think, I think this is key for me and most designers may not actually say this out loud, but it is practical over pretty. If your space does not actually function for your family, it's never going to look pretty. You're always going to have things strewn about. You're always going to have too many toys and not enough baskets, things like that. So you have to think about the practical needs before you think about making it look nice. And that's how I approach every one of my projects. I also think that there's a danger because most of my clients are in urban environments. Well, I would say we're 50-50. We're 50% suburbs and 50% urban spaces. And in those urban spaces, people feel like their furniture needs to do three things. My ottoman needs to turn into a coffee table, needs to turn into a dining table, needs to store all my magazines. And that's going to mean that it doesn't do any one thing very well. So I think anytime you expect your furniture to do more than two functions, it's asking too much. And we don't want pieces that are totally MacGyver. Like my bed turns into my storage space, turns into got lights in the headboard, <laughs> got, you know, um, niches for my books built into the side. It's just too tricked out. Just buy something simple, buy something basic. You can take it with you and it's not going to look crazy. And it's going to perform the one or two functions it does do properly. It's just like overburdening a partner. 
saying, hey, partner, I expect you to take out the garbage. I expect you to be great at paying bills. I expect you to have a high paying job. I expect you to take care of my kids. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, that person could be like, I'm not doing any of it. And that's the same thing with furniture. I also think, and this is a huge one. I think whether you rent or own, and 50% of our clients are renters, you need to find a way to fall in love with your space. So many people that I work with say, oh, this space is such a problem. I wanted a bigger bedroom or I wish it had more natural light. I can't believe the color of these floors, but I can't change it. And if you're constantly thinking about negative attributes of your space, you're not going to find that good place where you feel like committing, where you feel proud. So find something to love about your space and build from there. Because, you know, I've worked with people who live in studios and are unhappy. And I've worked with people who live in $5 million mansions and pick their place apart. And if you can't start from a place of love with your space, you're never going to feel at home. That is amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to commit to your space where it is and what it is right now. I actually, I have a stucco home, as I mentioned before. I hate stucco. Stucco is the one thing I told my real estate agent, don't show me any stucco homes. I will say, no, I do not want that. She showed me the stucco home and there's so much to love inside. I don't even see the exterior anymore. But you know, if we pick our place apart and say, well, I really hate the outside. Well, I really don't like that faucet or the kitchen cabinets are bothering me. You can't just focus on the negative attributes. Right. And I think it's funny that you brought up a husband. It's the same thing, right? Like if you keep focusing on the negative aspect, it's going to taint your perception of this person or this thing or this house. And eventually you're grown to kind of have this discontent and it gets more and more and more. It gets worse, basically. So I think that is really good point. you can't appreciate it. You don't want to spend time investing in that partner or investing in your space because it's not even worth it. I don't even like this thing. I don't even know how long I'm going to be here. You know, what's that song? Love the one you're with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about it. Love the one you're with, even if you're only going to be there a year. Even because in New York City, I signed a new year every, a new lease every year for seven years. But while I was there, I loved it. I painted the walls every time. I bought furniture that I knew would never go with me and was specific to that space. So I would feel at home while I was there. Love the one you're with. Life is too short. Commit to your space. Like you commit to a partner, flaws and all. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's You're living there. You're going to experience it. So why not maximize your, I would say return on investment, but also like your joy, basically. I mean, Marie Kondo, for example, is all about finding joy in your, lo- in your life, in, in the material that you own. It's the same with the house, you know? I completely agree. And while I find her system hard to follow, especially for my clients and myself, I do think there's something to that. Sparking joy, creating a home that sparks joy for you that's within your budget. Because I do think that's a huge component. Like I can buy things I love. They've pushed me outside my price point, And now I'm constantly working to pay those things off and resentful. So I think budget completely aligns with satisfaction and happiness. And that's why I created affordable interior design. You could have both, something that fits your budget and something that makes you happy. That's great. So we are coming to the end of our show. I want to ask you one last question. What would be the number one tip you're going to give to homeowners when it comes to designing their homes? 
The number one tip I would say is to create a plan. So don't just buy things one by one because you love them. So many times my clients say, I bought that piece of art. I love it. I bought that chair. I love it. I bought this rug. I love it. But none of it goes together. I think it's a real trap to only buy things that you love instead of considering the space as a whole. I think creating that more holistic plan and looking at everything, maybe creating a Pinterest board or putting all the pictures of the items together in a Word doc, just so you can see it together and make sure that the items feel cohesive. Because otherwise it's going to look like, you know, grandma's house or a flea market where all these things are well loved, but there's no cohesiveness. There's no through line. You want to make these things look like they belong together. Right. So the follow-up question would be, say they found an armchair they really, really, really love. They really want to buy it. So is it better? Because we talked about the 60-30-10 plan earlier. What if they use that as a starting point to plan out the entire room? Is that an approach to do that? Or how should they approach that if they just absolutely have to have this piece? Well, the 60-30-10 would be for the color palette. So if the chair is decorated in a vibrant fabric that has lots of colors, that could certainly be an awesome inspiration piece to jump off of. But it's kind of like, like if you just found an awesome chair and your home is already furnished and you want to kind of shove it in and make it work, it's like, just to go back to our clothing analogy, it's like going to a store. I went to Bloomingdale's the other day, which is kind of expensive for me. I go to Bloomingdale's, I find this shirt. I love it so much. I have nothing that it goes with right? It doesn't go with anything else that I have. I have no place to wear it because it's kind of formal and I don't really do many formal things at this point. And so I buy it and I haven't worn it in three years. It's kind of like that. Don't just buy something because you love it. Buy it because cohesively it will make sense with your space. And if you are starting from scratch and you find that chair that you love and you're willing to build a whole design around it, I think it's awesome. But, you know, as a designer, I'm constantly shopping and constantly seeing things that make my heart go pity pat that I want for myself. But I have to check and say, is this cohesive with what I have going on? No, it's not. I need to let this one go. And I should have let the shirt go from Bloomingdale's too, because there's 160 bucks. I'll never get back. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And now it doesn't even fit anymore. Full disclosure. Um, eBay. (laughs) (laughs) you know i've never done that but i i think there's something to that potentially yeah so thank you so much for being on our show you were a fantastic guest i love all the tips you've given it's so structured so easily broken down i just love it oh good well it has been such a pleasure cindy and you're gonna have to come on my podcast i would love to have you on my affordable interior design podcast i would love it So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.